we'll go ahead and, and get started here, I suppose. Let us begin in prayer in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Lord, be with us on this night as we talk about some cool stuff. Holy angels, please be with us. Guide our conversation. Um, guide us throughout our lives and pray for us always. We ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Okay, so today we are going to be talking about angels. Um, before we begin, maybe a brief introduction. This is, I think, like a theologian, which is just my excuse to talk about things that I think are interesting that are a little off the beaten path as far as general catechesis goes. It's a lot of stuff that I learned and you learned is doing a formal study of theology that doesn't always come up in a lot of especially parochial ministries and things like that just because it's not necessarily the most immediate or the most important things to know about Catholicism, but are things that I think are worth knowing and things that for one reason or another kind of changed the way that I thought about God or thought about the church or, or whatever it is. So we've talked about a lot of different topics, but today we're going to be talking about angels, our heavenly helpers, as it were. Um, and as the title suggests for this night, angels are weird. And that is in many ways the best way to describe it, just because angels are something that we talk about a lot and something we think about a lot, but something that we don't necessarily give their full treatment of, I guess you could say. We think about them in one way, um, but there's almost no way to completely think about them just because we know so little. One of the things I think will be exciting about our conversation tonight is that there's going to be a lot of room for speculation and hypothesis and things like that just because the amount of actual official church teachings on angels is pretty small compared to a lot of other things. So I want to talk first of all about what angels are. Um, they are they are the messengers of God, but they go far beyond that. One of the consistent things about angels is that they are pure spirits. That's usually how we describe them. And yes, can I help you? I'm going to communicate over here in your seat. <laughs> She's all good. You're going to mess with all my stuff the whole time? Hmm? Hmm? <laughs> really trying to muscle your way in here, huh? We'll see. We'll see. We'll see. At any rate, angels are. Um, Pure spirits, which sounds like a really positive thing, but pure in this case is actually more of a negative statement because pure doesn't necessarily mean holy. It just means like it's not anything else but spirit. Pure meaning thoroughly spirit or only spirit. Um, so the one consistent thing we know about angels is that they're spiritual, but spiritual doesn't just mean like, oh, holy, and has to do with faith and stuff, as a lot of times our colloquial usage is. Spirit in this context just refers to non-physical or immaterial. So to say that an angel is a pure spirit really just means it's like they don't have a body. And that's basically, that's like the main thing that we can say to define what an angel is. So that these utterly non-physical things, when I say that they don't have a body, I don't just mean that they don't have a torso. For some reason in art, people depict this idea really literally that oh angels don't have a body so it's just like a head with wings which is like a weird visual pun I guess but um, when we say that they don't have a body we mean that they don't have a brain they don't have blood they don't have 
any corporeal um, component to their essence, at least. So this leads to a few things. One, angels are a lot more abstract than we typically give them credit for. A lot of times people think of angels as like human souls just without the body, which is in some ways on the right track, but the fact that angels never had a body in the first place and don't have to have a body to be complete and aren't made for a bodily existence means that they are, in theory, anything that could be considered a person, that could be considered a mind, that could be considered a soul, and it does not have to look anything or behave anything like a human's, which means that the way angels think, the way that they process information, the way that they experience existence is probably really radically different than the way that we do. I mean, even consider the way that you think. Emily, consider the way that you think for a second. You usually think in terms of words or sounds or images or feelings. Angels don't have any of that, or at least they don't necessarily have to. Maybe some of them do, maybe all of them do, but we just don't know. All we know about them is that they're non-physical. But all of those normal ways that we think, thoughts, words, um, feelings, impressions, imagery even is all sort of based on a sort of physical existence the way that we think is heavily conditioned by human social life um, and the need to communicate via representational sounds or signals with our body things like that angels don't have to do anything like that to communicate to experience one another so what does an angel's thoughts like what are they like it's hard to conceive of such a thing then they could be vastly different than ours to the point of being almost inscrutable like it, it might be the case that some angels genuinely like their thoughts if you could even call them thoughts are so vastly different than ours that like we might not even be able to recognize them as thoughts without the beatific vision you know what i mean so this also means that angels don't really have a gender um, because gender is a thing that we have because we're physical beings and we reproduce in a certain way. Angels don't physically reproduce. So while we ascribe possibly masculine or feminine characteristics to one or another, that's more of an analogous comparison. It's not really like a statement about what they truly are, similar to what we said about the divine essence before. Um, and that also brings us to a weird conversation about what angels' appearance is like. Because even though we just said that they don't have a body, which means that by nature they should be invisible, right? Can't touch them, can't hear them, can't see them. We have plenty of accounts of angels appearing, quote-unquote, to people throughout the scriptures and in the lives of the saints and things like that. And some people say, well, okay, don't they look like something? And kind of, kind of. But the comparison I'm going to make is that that's almost like a, a video game avatar, if you will. So when you think about video games, if you've played video games, um, oftentimes you get to sort of make your own character and you can kind of design what they look like and, and all that good stuff. And that's cool. And as you play the game, your character moves around and they, you know, you control their actions and all that kind of stuff. And for the purposes of the game, that's you. That's, that's you, the player. When I'm playing a game with some friends, I have a character that I designed, and when I look at another character on screen, I see a representation of Jordan. And I usually appropriate that kind of language. I'll say, oh, I see you. Or we'll say if you're playing some game that involves dying, you say like, oh, I died, right? Not necessarily my video game character died, or there were scenes on the TV that represented death. No, we say I died, right? 
for the purposes of the video game space, that's me. But would we say that that's, like, my true form or my, like, actual appearance? Not really. Um, it represents me, and there might even be a certain sense in which the way that I design the character represents me in a way that's not random, that does actually correspond to who I am or what I look like or something like that. I want to say something similar about the appearances of angels that we see in the scriptures and the lives of the saints and things like that. Yes, it's true that the angels appear, but it's almost like a sort of video game avatar, that those are their appearances for the purposes of this world. For the purposes of the material universe, sure, that's them. And as far as materiality is concerned, yeah, that's kind of where they are in the world. That's sort of the, the fullest manifestation of their presence here on Earth. But is that their true nature on display? Not exactly. Not exactly. But, again, like the video game Avatar, it might represent them accurately. Again, since angels are invisible, it's not necessarily like a mirror reflection of their actual appearance, but there's something about the way that angels appear that is supposed to represent certain things that are true about them. For instance, angels oftentimes appear as people for a few reasons. One, because they're usually appearing to human beings, so it, it's easy to approach a human being looking like another human being. But there might be some truth to the idea that humans are kind of the closest thing to angels in the material universe. So maybe as far as material things are concerned, that might be the most accurate way to represent them. But it might also have to do with just the fact that they are also, you know, beings with souls and free will and the capacity for true knowledge and for love and, and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, it might make sense to just make them people with wings or halos or something like that. And that's usually how we see them in art. But interestingly, that isn't the only way that they are accurately represented. I mean, even when we, going back to the analogy of kind of our online presence, if you will, we don't always have a video game character that looks human. Um, in, for instance, chat forums or websites or, or social media profiles or whatever, oftentimes the way that we represent ourselves online isn't necessarily just a picture of us and isn't necessarily a human-looking character. On certain websites, it's more common to find people's accounts represented with some kind of icon or with some kind of picture. And we actually see angels doing that in the scriptures as well. I want to briefly touch on a few passages where some prophets actually get a, a, a vision of heaven. And in their heavenly vision, they do see what appear to be angels or what are traditionally held to be angels. First one I want to read comes from Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah is one of the more famous prophets, and this is pretty early on in his ministry where he gets this vision of God's throne. And he says that in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. That's a kind of angel. We'll say more about them in a bit. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And all the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. So we've got some, like, kind of human imagery here. Apparently they have, you know, faces and feet and things like that. But I do love the idea of multiple pairs of wings, um, which, oddly enough, we'll get to in a second, is not a uniquely Jewish way to picture divine things. Um, in fact, as we've done more studies into other ancient Near Eastern cultures, we actually find that in a lot of their religions, the idea of heavenly messengers having like several sets of wings is a pretty common visual motif in a lot of their art and architecture and so forth. The second vision I want to talk about comes from Ezekiel chapter 1, and it's very similar. Hi, you want to read about this vision? Ezekiel 
In the thirtieth year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month, says Ezekiel, as I was among the exiles by the river Chebar, the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. On the fifth day of the month, it was the fifth year of the exile, by the way, the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel. As I looked, behold, a stormy wind came out of the north, and a great cloud with brightness round about it, and fire flashing forth continually, and in the midst of the fire, as it were, uh, gleaming bronze. And from the midst of it came the likeness of four living creatures. And this was their appearance. They had the form of men, but each had four faces, and each of them had four wings. Their legs were straight, and the soles of their feet were like the soles of a calf's foot, and they sparkled like burnished bronze. Under their wings on their four sides they had human hands, and the four had their faces and their wings thus. Their wings touched one another, and they went every one straight forward without turning as they went. As for the likeness of their faces, each had the face of a man in front. The four had the face of a lion on the right side, the four had the face of an ox on the left side, and the four had the face of an eagle at the back. Such were their faces, and their wings were spread out above, and each creature had two wings, each of which touched the wing of another, while two covered their bodies. And each went straight forward. Wherever the spirit would go, they went, without turning as they went. In the midst of the living creatures, there was something that looked like burning coals of fire, like torches moving back and forth among the living creatures. And the fire was bright, and of the fire went forth lightning. And the living creatures darted back and forth like a flash of lightning. Now, as I looked at the creatures, I saw a wheel upon the earth beside the living creatures, one for each of the four of them. As for the appearance of the wheels and their construction, their appearance was like the gleaming of a chrysolite, which is like a green gemstone, in case you were wondering. And the four had the same likeness, their construction being, as it were, a wheel within a wheel. Where they went, they went with, excuse me, when they went, they went in any of their four directions without turning as they went. The four wheels had rims, and they had spokes, and their rims were full of eyes round about. Yes, eyes like I, uh, E-Y-E, eyes. And when the living creatures went, the wheels went beside them. And when the living creatures rose from the earth, the wheels rose. Wherever the spirit would go, they went, and the wheels rose along with them, for the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. So we're starting to get a little funkier with some of our, our angelic imagery. Now, this is not the only version of this. Um, in fact, this imagery is either borrowed or repeated in the vision of St. John way at the end of the New Testament in the book of Revelation. He, too, has a vision of the heavenly throne, and we see some similar imagery, although it's, it's, it's tweaked a little bit. But he says, At once I was in spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there appeared like Jasper and Carnelian, and round the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns upon their heads. And from the throne issued flashes of lightning, and voices and peals of thunder, and before the throne burned seven torches of fire. Um, interestingly, those also might be angels. Perhaps more on that later. These are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there is, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. Um, this is a brief aside. When he says sea here, he doesn't mean like a gigantic body of water. Well, he kind of does, but not like the ocean. Um, the sea is actually like a technical term for this really big um, tub, basically, that was used in the old temple of Jerusalem for various ritual purposes. And it, it, did, it was just like a gigantic tub that held a lot of water. So I, it makes sense why they called it the sea. Anyways. Round the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. 
The first living creature was like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, and the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, and full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to sing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the twenty-four elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. And they cast down their thrones, or excuse me, cast down their crowns before the throne and, and sing and, and all this good stuff. Um, so we have some repeated imagery. Now, I'm not sure whether the repetition of the imagery is reflective of a certain kind of simile, like they're seeing visions of the same thing and perhaps describing it in different ways, or maybe it's just for the sake of our benefit that there's some consistency in the images of the throne of God, or sometimes this is actually read as the chariot of God. In some of the visions, the whole throne is actually like moving, and the whole thing with like the wheels within wheels full of eyes and stuff like that are supposed to be weird representations of like the mobility of, of God's throne and stuff like that. At any rate, these are strange. Um, some people, these visions have actually kind of made the rounds on the internet recently in terms of just like how angels are so differently depicted in traditional art as opposed to how they appear in actual visions of angels, um, at least that you find in the Old and a little bit in the New Testaments. And there are some theories as to why the angels appear this way, um, but there is nothing that's like official. So the idea of the wings is reasonably common because in the ancient Near East, heaven was conceived of as being just sort of upwards. It was sort of um, above the sky, if you will. They referred to the heavens when they talked about sort of the firmament, this big sort of dome, I guess you could say. That is sort of like a recurrent motif in, in Jewish cosmology. And so when you're talking about the messengers of God that sort of go up and down from heaven to earth, it makes sense that they would have wings. Um, now, why multiple wings? I don't know that there's a sure answer. I don't know if there's an agreed upon answer. Yeah, maybe more speed, more dexterity. I don't know. But at any rate, the recurrent imagery of the eyes thing, which is super weird. I read this some of these passages to my students sometime, and like that line really freaks them out because like kids love to imagine, right? So they really are like really trying to vividly imagine what this looks like. And then I get to the part where it's like, oh, and they're just full of eyes all around them and inside and all that kind of stuff. Um, and, and some of the kids are like, now hold on, are we talking about the same, we talk, we still talking about angels, Mr. Wynn? It's like, yeah, we, we actually are. Um, the whole eyes thing might represent um, wisdom, it might represent knowledge, either knowledge of earth or perhaps just knowledge of God, the idea that they have this sort of unmitigated, unlimited view of the divine essence or, or something like that, something along those lines. But again, there's weirdly no official teaching as to what this is actually supposed to mean. It's possible that this meant something to the original audience that has just been lost to time. Um, same thing with the whole multiple faces kind of thing going on. Thank you. Oh, you're not returning that yet? Okay, sorry. The whole thing with the multiple faces, especially why the, the lion, the ox, the eagle, and, and the man, we kind of... I, there's just no official consensus. Different theologians have kind of proposed different things over the course of the years. Um, you may have actually heard that those different animals um, represent the four evangelists and the four gospels. That's actually kind of like a later, a later thing that was not necessarily present because, I mean, when Ezekiel's vision was written down, obviously he had no idea of the gospels. And even when the gospels were being written, there was no conception that there were going to be exactly four of them. You know what I mean? 
So that was actually something that was sort of mapped onto that imagery a little bit later by various theologians and thinkers and things like that, um, especially when they're considering, you know, how do we depict art and, and, and stuff like that. Um, there is especially some weird tie-ins with just various animal symbology that human cultures have kind of had over the years. The idea of like, oh, well, what kind of things do lions represent? What kind of things do eagles represent? For instance, some people say that the eagle represents the Gospel of John, which is sort of the more airy and elevated and slightly less historical feeling gospel. It's the one that feels a little more um, like written late in John's life and maybe has a little more kind of like abstract theology to it. And some people say, oh, well, because eagles like fly and stuff, right? Boom, St. John. D again, there's been different schemes as to how this imagery maps onto these different things. But again, I don't know that there's like a single agreed upon position, um, which is which is interesting. But they did. They did. And again, it's possible that it meant something very specific to its original audience that we just either don't know or just haven't uncovered yet or, or something like that. Okay, so so much for the appearance of angels or how they're represented. But I want to talk a few, just a few more characteristics about angels before we move on to what angels actually do. Anyways, um, angels, it seems, have a weird relationship with time compared to us. Um, Aquinas and some others put them in the eternal category, which if you remember from last year was the one that is close to true eternity, but isn't true eternity because only God is truly eternal. So angels are, like imagine how time works for saints in heaven. Angels experience that perhaps even more fully and have always experienced that, have only experienced eternity. So how an angel experiences time is debatable because they have a, they do seem to have some kind of dynamism. For instance, the fallen angels can be created good and then choose to become evil. So there's some sense in which they do have a kind of before and after kind of thing going on. But beyond that, their experience of time might be a little bit more like God's than like ours. Or maybe it is just sort of a really standard just experience of just living forever. Again, there's not much official teachings regarding that. But um, it's it's likely that they just conceive of everything that we do, but in like different ways. Like they observe the same reality, they observe the same God, but always with just like a completely different lens and with like a completely different set of experiences to kind of relate that to and, and all that, which, is, which sometimes hurts the brain to think about. Now, another weird one is that since angels are non-physical, they also don't have to have certain similarities between themselves. People like you and I have certain similarities because we're the same biological species. Um, and that's just a physical thing. Like having a biological species that reproduces biologically and all that kind of stuff is a feature of humanity, but may not necessarily be a feature of angels, which means that it might be the case that completely unrestricted by you know, physical similarity, angels might each be so to speak, their own species. Um, every single, like every single individual angel might be just a completely different exotic being with more or less similarity, perhaps no similarity that we would recognize or maybe only similarities that we wouldn't recognize. It's, it's hard to say. What's up? So in what sense is that different in a way that every human is unique in their personality? Like do you think that yeah. humans have um, 
like the study of psychology could categorize trends in humanity or um, certain patterns or certain deficiencies that can be shared among humans. Yeah. And like the, the way that you can categorize disorders is counting on that consistency. Is it that would also not be present or you're just saying it's possible. physically angels don't look alike, which I already assumed would be. The yeah, case. a little bit of both, a little bit of both. So it's possible that no two angels thinks exactly the same way or that again, like you mentioned, like psychological trends may just not be a thing amongst them. Um, because a lot of the way that we think is, you know, through a physical brain, right? But if like, if you're not saying that like my every thought has to be using the same organ that yours does, you know what I mean? Then in theory, like our thoughts could be incredibly different from one another, that kind of stuff. Yeah, because like, that's not like a... To call them all angels. Like, I guess maybe that's painting with too broad a brush. Well, yeah. share a language potentially, or there's some angels that are incomprehensible to other angels and only them and God There's going on? There's genuinely different theories about that. Again, one of the fun things is that like we really are just speculating when we get that far into angelology because there's no official teachings. Now, we'll get in a second here to some like majority opinions amongst theologians. Um, but again, there's since there's no hard official church doctrine, you're free to speculate, however, um, provided that you maintain the idea that they're, you know, spiritual beings and that the good ones are in service of God and the bad ones aren't and, you know, a, a handful of other things that we'll, we'll talk about. So one of the things that we that they kind of do have in common um, is that they do seem to be powerful to some degree. Um, in fact, the Psalms, for instance, when they're praising humanity or not necessarily praising humanity, they're praising the goodness and the honor that God has lavished upon humanity. They describe it as like, oh, like, God, you're so gracious so as to make men little less than the angels. So there's this idea that angels are almost wholesale, just like a higher type of being that we are, um, especially if they're sort of created directly in heaven without kind of going through the earthly experience first and then going to heaven like we do. So there is that sense, but part of the reason we call them angels rather than pure spirits um, at least originally is because the word angel comes from not what angels are but what angels do uh, the word angel comes from latin angelus and the greek i'm not sure how to pronounce it, it's agalos or something like that um, which basically just means messenger um, the word angel in fact when we'll get to the categories of angels there is one category that's just referred to as the angels which seems a little weird and redundant, but it's mainly because like those are the angels that, according to this one model, are like the main ones that kind of are emissaries to humanity, if you will. So, angel is less of a less of a term describing their nature and more just about like their role in human history, if that makes sense. The chief thing that we see angels doing is mostly bringing messages to people. Um, they represent God. And they talk about his truth. They talk about his plan. Uh, the famous examples being the Annunciation, right? Gabriel appearing to Mary or Gabriel appearing to Zechariah announcing the birth of John the Baptist or, or things like that. Um, angels communicate with the leaders of Israel throughout the Old Testament. But there's this weird thing that goes on wherein the messages that they bring is such an important feature of how we understand them that we almost the language of the scriptures kind of blurs where the message ends and the messenger begins. And in fact, there are even passages where the difference between the angel and the God who sent them 
is blurred. Uh, especially when we talk about some of the Old Testament stuff, Abraham and so forth. There are scenes where Abraham is talking to this group of three appearingly human beings that are described by the scriptures as the Lord passing by, but also a few verses later are described as angels. And these three men converse with Abraham about a number of different things, and then the Lord, apparently, says to Abraham, I'm going to go check out Sodom and Gomorrah to see if, you know, what I've heard about them is really true with some weird rhetorical flair, right? And then the other two that aren't the Lord are the ones that actually end up going down to Sodom and Gomorrah. So there's this weird blurring of, like, what's an angel and what's the Lord? There are actually even more extreme examples. When Jacob is wrestling with somebody in the middle of the night on his way back to the Holy Land after spending some time um, working for Laban, his father-in-law, he wrestles with this being who, again, appears to be a man, and different passages either describe this being that he's wrestling with as an angel or as God, <laughs> which is interesting. And in fact, it's after this encounter that he's renamed Israel, which most literally means somebody who strives or contends or wrestles with God. Not wrestles with an angel, but wrestles with God. Even more extreme examples, when Gideon, who's a judge in the book of Judges, is called by God to lead the armies of Israel. He has a conversation with somebody who is, I kid you not, in the same paragraph referred either to as the messenger of the Lord or just as the Lord. And so there's this weird sense in which the angels are so closely united to God or such perfect representatives of God that it's hard for humans to tell which is which which I think is fascinating to think about. Um, and I want you to hold that in the back of your mind because that kind of rears its head in some of the later things we'll talk about regarding angels as well. Uh, when the Israelites are leaving Egypt, whether the thing that's in the pillar of fire and or smoke is God or an angel, kind of fuzzy. Um, whether Moses converses directly with God or with an angel when he's talking to the burning bush or um, writing the Ten Commandments or whatever, kind of fuzzy. Um, sometimes the prophets even, when they describe God speaking through them or, or in them or with them, it's just kind of fuzzy whether they're speaking to an angel or God directly and, and things like that. There's this weird sense in which God's presence is almost um, mediated through the angels, so to speak. Now, all of that might just be like just rhetorical, right? It might just be like some weird thing about the way that the author chose to write the story that just kind of gives us some weird imagery but I, I think it's interesting that that kind of stuff made it into the scriptures so angels are primarily the messengers of God but we do see them in a variety of other roles as well um, for one thing they are intercessors there are a handful of passages especially in these sort of visions of heaven kind of thing especially in the book of Revelation where the angels are described as sort of bearing the prayers of the holy ones before God's throne and things like that in the book of Revelation in fact one of them has like a bowl that apparently like inside the bowl are everybody's prayer intentions and he sort of offers those to God and all that kind of stuff. So they have this sort of intercessory role as well, um, which has kind of given rise to one of the sort of colloquial Christian folklore things where like angels, you know, carry your prayers to heaven and all that kind of stuff. That actually is, uh, there's, there's some scriptural precedent for that, which I think is interesting. But aside from the messenger thing and the intercessory thing, it appears that angels also have some kind of authority over the created world. Um, and I want to 
we'll probably talk about this one at a little bit more length. Firstly, we see angels having some kind of guardianship role throughout the scriptures. Um, now, I don't just mean guardian angels. We'll get to those in a second. But throughout the scriptures, there is this sense in which there are explicit stories, like in the book of Tobit, for instance, where there's kind of an angel who's sort of, you know, walking our heroes through the story and all that kind of stuff. There are various points where different sort of protagonists of their respective stories are praising God or thanking God, and they talk about, you know, oh, his angel has been with me all this time, or his angel has watched out for me, and things like that. There are even some lines that kind of suggest that there are angels who are put in charge of protecting entire groups of people. Uh, For instance, we have what might be an angel in the pillar of fire slash smoke during the Exodus, but then there are other mentions throughout the various prophetic books and so on that kind of describe angels being put in charge of watching over a certain tribe or a certain country or something like that, a certain family even on occasion. And this is in part possible because, like we said, it seems that angels have some degree of control over our universe, which is a bit strange to think about. Um, We kind of, like, talk about this often, right? We say, like, oh, you know, you pray to your guardian angel for, like, a safe trip home or whatever. So we kind of implicitly talk about this and pray about this already. But it's weird when you kind of really start digging into it and kind of noticing, like, okay, so angels are, they're, like, they have direct influence over, like, things that transpire here in the material universe, which is interesting. There's even been a pretty... um, common supposition amongst a lot of Catholic theologians over the course of the centuries that angels are actually secondary causes in the creation of the material universe. That is, that God created angels first, and then through the angels created our universe, which is, like, super weird to think about, which on a few, which does a few things for us. One, it kind of explains their sort of guardianship capacity if they have some kind of role in the creation of the world it makes sense that they would be able to exert some kind of influence over it some theologians have even gone so far as to suggest that this is something that is in their nature and not just something that like god has sort of given them authority to do which is why some theologians have theorized that physical evils as we sometimes call them natural disasters spontaneous apparently spontaneous diseases etc etc might be, according to one theory, the work of demons. Like, genuinely the work of demons that still retain some degree of authority over the material universe. Um, One of the more common explanations for witchcraft and associated occult observations is that people who are into that kind of stuff genuinely might be receiving power from beings that have it by nature but aren't loyal to God. Things like that, which is why traditionally Christians have been like so anti-witchcraft, anti-any sort of like magic kind of stuff, because according to the most common way of thinking of it, like the only place you really get powers over nature that isn't science is angels that, you know, aren't doing what they're supposed to be doing. Mm-hmm. Egypt and how the plagues all kind of occur, but then the last one they say, Oh, an angel's doing this, the angel of yeah. death. And it seems like if it's just God doing a miracle and the angel just sort of like also there, like it seems natural to expect that the, the causation is 
through the angels. Yeah. Right? It's by the angels' potency that that's occurring. Oh, yeah. So angels at least have the possibility to to kill. <laughs> oh, yeah. To, to enact execution. Oh, yeah. And it, and it seems like it is the authority of God that, like, stays their hand, basically. Right. Um, that, I mean, obviously, like, the loyal angels probably would not do such a thing anyways. But, it, I, yeah. I have so many but it's, questions related to it. Okay. Right? Good, good, good. Um, in fact, it's interesting that you bring up the plagues because in the book of Revelation, like I mentioned, John has his vision of heaven and there's all these angels and things like that. And a lot of this is, like, figurative. A lot of this is just, like, visions that represent other things. But there's one point where he's talking about these angels that have these, like, bowls that they pour out onto the earth. And the bowls are just full of just all these horrendous calamities. Like, we're talking, like, one pours his bowl out, and there's just, like, earthquakes and fire and all that kind of stuff. So at least according to this vision, however literal it is, at least some of the angels do at least possess or are given like insane powers over the material universe. Again, how much of that is literal, hard to say. Is, but. It, is it reasonable to suppose that some of the plagues could have potentially been demons that were allowed to enact the will that they otherwise have had? Perhaps. Like perhaps. Like yeah. Associated with like insects and, and like Sometimes, things. yeah. So that gets into like a really weird conversation about like how much of what goes on in the universe is something that's part of God's perfect will, meaning the things that he's deliberately choosing, um, or they're part of his, what we call his permissive will, which is like what he lets to happen. And like, it's possible, but we just straight up don't know. Um, And yeah, like the book of Job, for instance. Right. Yeah, we'll, we'll talk about the book of Job in a bit, actually. Um, Curiously, I'll spoil a little bit of it. The book of Job is of questionable historicity um it's possible that it's actually sort of like a fable or, or a parable um to kind of discuss questions of morality and, and things like that at any rate um yeah it's possible that some of the things that angels do might be just god letting evil angels do stuff um for instance there's one passage in um it's in the book of kings or maybe is it the first book of kings i think it's the first book of kings and the same story appears in one of the books of Chronicles, where it's talking about David um, performing a census on, on Israel. And apparently this is like a, this is like a bad thing. Um, he's sort of reprimanded for doing so. But the book of Kings and the book of Chronicles describe it differently, where one of them says that this is something that like an evil spirit influenced David to do, like a, some evil spirit tempted him towards that. But then in the other book, I can't remember which is which, it says that, like, this is something that, like, God did. So there's, like, some weird instances in the scriptures where we see, one, a more refined understanding of secondary causality in the later authored scriptures as opposed to the earlier authored scriptures. But there is that weird sort of ambiguity about how much of it is, like, the direct influence of God versus just God sort of, you know, taking the reins off a little bit and, and that kind of stuff. Oh yeah. Like when it talks about God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Yeah. Oh yeah. Moses, you're like, WTF God? Like, <laughs> why, why would you do why this? You why would you do this? Yeah. Um, but at the very least, one of the actual, genuine, concrete doctrines that we do have in the church is that angels do play a sort of guardianship role, and that you do have a sort of specific angel that is like your guardian angel. So that's legitimate. Now. 
Um, yes. So there are a few biblical sources for it. Um, there's, uh, as I mentioned, sort of scattered throughout the scriptures, there's references of various heroes and, and leaders and things like that, talking about how God's angel has been with them and protecting them and that kind of stuff. One of the more uh, explicit ones is when Jesus is talking about not harming people, uh, especially like not harming what he calls the little ones. You know what I mean? I mean, he says that like, you know, their angels are ever before God and, and watching out for them and things like that. Um, so it's well attested to in, in the scriptures, and those are some of the, the main ones. One of the things that's not officially defined is like what the human to guardian angel ratio is. So different theologians have had different opinions about whether or not like your family has an angel that watches out for all of you or whether, you know, an, an angel gets sort of reassigned when the, when the person they're protecting dies or something like that. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, or... Yeah, or whether, you know, their angel really is, like, theirs and theirs alone. Um, and again, there is a diversity of opinions amongst the illusions. I would say that, at least in my research, the majority opinion is that you have, like, a one-to-one -one ratio. Um, whether they get reassigned when you die, I don't, I don't know if there's, like, a really strong majority in, in that regard. But it's interesting to think about, that there might be an angel who's responsible for entire groups of people, or maybe there really genuinely is, like, a single angel that's, like, your guardian and like your guardian alone and I, I think i think both are cool i think both would be cool and it's just the some something something that we'll figure out later i guess the one to one yeah. ratio also implies a vast population difference between angels and humans because if there yeah. is one angel for every human that has ever lived is living and will ever live and then there's also eight other choirs and there are yep billions upon billions of oh yeah and right right so there can be billions and billions the scriptures do suggest that there are lots of them um for instance there are mentions of some that are like in groups of seven for instance um some of the archangels introduce themselves as like oh i'm raphael i'm one of the seven who stand before the lord or something like that right but at least in the garden of gethsemane when the soldiers are arresting jesus you know and and peter draws his sword and starts swinging right the way that Jesus sort of calms him down, if you will, is by saying, like, Peter, don't you think I could, like, get out of this if I wanted to? And the language he uses is, do you not think that I could, like, basically just ask and more than 12 legions of angels would come to my defense? And 12 legions is, like, quite a bit, you know what I mean? So there seems to be at least 12 legions worth of angels, and if we're assuming a one-to-one -one ratio of guardians to humans, then yes, it's estimated to be what like a hundred and something billion humans that have lived throughout history Jesus's Jewish audience in the garden of mm -hmm. Gethsemane have interpreted legion as like a Roman military term. I would have imagined so because the, the Romans would have been or something. I don't know the number off the top of my head but I would imagine so just or because the Romans had been in power in the Holy Land for um several several decades beforehand at least maybe a few centuries before their time of Christ but at any rate so there's like a weird, there's a weird ambiguity sometimes when Jesus performs miracles about whether, whether what he's doing is a healing or an exorcism. Um, for instance, there are some, some instances of like, oh, Jesus, you know, helps some boy who has seizures. And like in some versions of it, he's possessed. And in other versions of it, he has narcolepsy or something like that. You know what I mean? And 
it's interesting to wonder, okay, but if demons do retain some kind of control over the material universe, maybe those things aren't different. <laughs> you know what I mean? Sorry, I'm just laughing myself. Yeah. I, I just looked up how many is a legion, and it says a legion was 5,000, you know, heavy infantry. Sure. So 12 legions is 60,000, and I'm like, Jesus, don't you think 60,000 <laughs> <laughs> angels is a bit much. overkill for, like, 30 guys? But I think... But I think that's the point. Yeah. Yeah. And here's and here's the crazy thing is that that's not even the only time this happens. There is. There is. Yeah. There is one time where one of the prophets in the Old Testament, I think it was Elisha, but I'm not for sure. There is one time where the there's a prophet living at the time when Jerusalem's under siege, and the prophet is basically trying to console his apprentice, and he's saying like, "Don't worry, God's in control," and like. He is just sort of like in prayer and like as his sort of prophet apprentice is looking on, the apprentice gets a vision of just armies of angels surrounding the prophet. And so there's like, it's like, so this weird moment in the Garden of Gethsemane, like isn't even the first time we get this glimpse of there being these huge numbers. Um, In fact, the sort of word that we use when we talk about God as being the God of hosts, right? Or, you know, the heavenly hosts. Um, I think in its original context does imply like a pretty considerable amount of something. So yeah, presumably there are billions of angels. Yeah, it's frequently used in in descriptions of armies and and things like that. On the topic of sure multitudes and visions, not from biblical sources, but when we get um, stories from the saints, like yeah. Padre Boo, for example, where they have visions of you know angels or souls at the mass. Is all, do we see similar reports where there's multitudes or where there's like this experience of like many beings? The ones that I'm familiar with, which in in honesty is not too many, the ones that I'm familiar with, yeah, it, it seems like it's a lot. I mean, weirdly, I think in at least one saint's vision, there is that repeated image of the angels like carrying prayers to the altar, which I think is which is like a fun a fun little piece of continuity and that kind of thing. Um, <laughs> Yeah, yeah, something like that. Something like that. So I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about um, some highlights from the history of what's loosely referred to as angelology, which is like the study of angels, basically. Um, And it's also weird. Also weird. The development of how we arrived at an understanding of angels is also strange. So... The short answer is like, okay, well, angels appear to Abraham and the Israelites and whatever. So, okay, it seems like there's some kind of servants of God. Yes, that's true. That's a big part of it. But some of the historical context gives us some really... They're not actually that weird, objectively, but they are in... They're just different than we're used to thinking about angels. So here's sort of the, the main idea is that our understanding of angels might have actually evolved from ancient Jewish polytheism, which is hilarious. So, um, in the early days of ancient Israel, they actually were not quite proper monotheists. They had an understanding of their God, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, right? The Lord Almighty, if you will. Um, But amongst the majority of them, He was not the only God that they believed in, and much to the chagrin of the priests and prophets throughout Israel's history, he was not the only God that they worshipped either. (laughs) In fact, the 
in today's uh, catechesis, oftentimes the commandment against having other gods is always interpreted according to like, you know, don't put other things before God. But the literal text of it is don't have any other gods before me. And that genuinely was the intended meaning was just like, let's just get like the basics. Dear Israel, worship this God and don't act like any of the others are the top God. Like, let's just start there and then we'll work <laughs> our way up. So the ancient Israelites did see Yahweh as this sort of creator God. And a lot of their writings seem to suggest that they even considered that he was sort of higher than the other ones, that he was this sort of S-tier God, that he was sort of an order of magnitude greater than the rest, the which, is, which is actually why they sometimes have certain titles for him that they use. You may have heard God called the Lord of Lords. In context, the word Lord is actually just used as like a standard way to address a divinity. In fact, one of like the really like common, I guess you could say, religious conflicts of ancient Israel was between the worship of Yahweh and the worship of some deity that's referred to as Baal or Baal or, or however you pronounce it. It's B-A apostrophe A-L. The word Baal is usually translated like that in English, but that's actually just leaving the word untranslated. The actual translation is just Lord, which you can see why they didn't translate it because they call Yahweh the Lord. And Baal just means Lord, right? So it's like the Lord versus the Lord. Anyways, standardly, you would refer to your God as Lord or my Lord or the Lord. So when the ancient Israelites call Yahweh the Lord of Lords, they really genuinely are considering him like the God of gods, the sort of meta-god who's like, as I, as I mentioned, yeah, like a, an order of magnitude greater than the others. And that is apparently how a lot of the ancient Israelites interpreted the command, you know, don't have any other gods before me, right? Or misinterpreted the command, maybe I should say. So that's all good. That's also why they call him things like the Most High, the Lord of Hosts, all that kind of stuff. But one of the weird things about the idea of him being the Lord of Hosts is who the hosts are. Today, we think, obviously, angels and saints. But at the time, may have been in reference to other gods. <laughs> in fact, some of like the sort of patron gods of their, their neighbors, even. Because obviously the ancient Jews had like a bunch of other countries that were around them and they had these sort of different um, gods who were supposed to be their sort of national patron, if you will. Not all of them worked exactly like that, but a lot of them did. It is suggested, especially when you look at some of the older scriptures of the Old Testament, that the earliest versions of these stories might have sort of presupposed this polytheistic view of the world. In fact, the word that's used in Genesis when God creates everything is Elohim, which we've, I'm sure, heard before. Elohim is a plural word. <laughs> Most literally, it means the gods, if you were to translate it really, really literally. Now, by the time that Genesis is probably officially penned down, it has come to refer to Yahweh, but there's this interesting sort of like residual language of the will of God being accomplished by some kind of multiplicity. That's curious. Now, as we've mentioned before, there is a common theory that God created the material universe through the angels. So it makes sense that God says, let us create man in our image, you know, things like that. But it's possible that in the very earliest versions of that story, that might have originally been meant to refer to like a group of gods, a group of deities creating the universe and and all that kind of stuff, which is interesting. Okay, so how did we get from one to the other? Well, um, 
So Yahweh was seen as presiding over this group of gods. Like I mentioned, he's this S-tier God, the Lord of Lords, all that kind of stuff. Some other Old Testament scriptures use this motif of a divine council, or sometimes referred to as the divine assembly, wherein Yahweh gathers and a group that's referred to as the sons of God also get together and talk about things and make decisions about how what should be going on in the universe and all that kind of stuff. Um, and this is, again, somewhat ambiguous as to who these beings are. Because we read that as a Christian, you think, oh, it's just God chatting to the angels, I guess. But it's possible that, again, the original versions of these stories, the divine council or the divine assembly, might have been Yahweh and just a group of other deities. Um, but I think this is pr probably a proper like precedent for, for angels, because in the book of Job, for instance, which again is very likely to be parabolic, the story of Job kind of opens with this divine council, um, and they're getting together. And it's actually in the book of Job that we see one of the earliest explicit references to Satan. Um, the word Satan just re literally just means accuser. In fact, in the literal versions of these verses, he's referred to not as like Satan with a capital S, like a name. He's just referred to as the Satan, the accuser. So there's this council between God and the sons of God, whoever that is. And that's when the accuser shows up and he says, Job ain't that great. You know, you give him a little bit of trouble and he'll turn against you, you know, all whatever. Now, it's a little ambiguous as to whether or not the accuser is supposed to be there, but he does serve as like the antagonist of the story but it's interesting to, to kind of see this motif because this isn't the only place that it's there but you can kind of see the beginnings of our understanding of the angels kind of start to sort of develop here now eventually the israelites get to a point where monotheism does become pretty standard especially after the babylonian exile and the jews return so later prophets explicitly say that the gods of their neighbors are not real gods, that they are just works of metal or wood or stone, and that, you know, isn't it silly that our neighbors are all, you know, bowing down to just these statues effectively, right? However, the Israelites still retain this idea of there being divine beings that aren't Yahweh. I mean, it would be hard not to. After all, like, this having angelic involvement is a huge part of their history, right? It's a huge part of Jewish history to, to understand that there are divine heavenly beings that work for Yahweh but aren't Yahweh. So there's this weird sense in which the whole thing about the divine council and these other, other divine beings that aren't Yahweh they may not have had this hard separation between gods and angels. It may be that just sort of gradually, the worship and praise and power of Yahweh was just so highly lifted up, and the veneration and power of the other gods was sort of de-emphasized, that the idea of the other gods besides Yahweh just sort of gradually became an understanding of God and the angels. Because as we mentioned earlier, it seems that some of the angels, at least, do wield tremendous power over material creation. It genuinely probably is true that some of the angels, at least, are as powerful or more powerful than the ancients believed about their deities. So there is this weird sense in which there is a class of beings that has been consistent the whole time, 
the ancients considered to be other gods, whereas the more recent people of God have seen them as something that shouldn't properly be called a god. They are godly, they are godlike, and the good ones are in the service of God to the point that you can almost blur the lines between what's God doing something and what's the divine messenger doing something. But it's weird to think that our understanding of angels is strangely kind of rooted in ancient polytheism. <laughs> Um, and in fact, a lot of the things that are said about angels by the ancient Jews are somewhat shared with some of the other people in the region as well. In fact, some of the imagery that's used for angels, for instance, the idea of the whole thing with, like I mentioned, the multiple wings, in some cases, the animal heads, are also visual motifs we find in other cultures' representations of their either gods or their sort of heavenly messengers or the divine attendants of their gods or or whatever. So... A lot of these things did not develop in a vacuum, and I just think it's kind of interesting to to go back and, and look at the look at the research and and see at least what we know about the ancient cultures. Now, again, none of this is like really officially completely defined. Um, this is stuff that's still being investigated by historians and theologians, and mostly a, a hypothetical. It's not like set in stone that like the exact origins of the angels was an ancient polytheism, but it's a strong possibility. Weirdly as well, I mentioned that the neighboring countries had patron deities. That actually might be the origin of the idea of guardian angels. <laughs> um, like I mentioned, I mean, even in the book of Revelation, for instance, John begins before he talks about, well, not before he talks about all his visions, but before he talks about most of his visions, he has a brief address for some of the other Christians in a variety of different cities in the Roman Empire at the time. And he addresses them to the angels of those churches. Now, there's a good chance that this is actually a figure of speech in reference to their bishop, kind of like how we say, like, oh, so-and-so such an angel, right? Um, but if he was, but if that way of addressing is indicative of a belief in a patron angel for specific groups of people, it wouldn't have been out of the blue, and it wouldn't have been uniquely Christian either, which is, again, just kind of weird to think about, I think. But anyways... So there's um, some different classifications of angels um, about like, okay, so is there any way that we can think about angels that isn't just like this sort of vague nebulous understanding of some higher than humans but lower than God kind of beings? There have been a lot of different attempts to classify different angels. Um, and there's, again, no official teaching, but there is kind of a majority position. So I'll, I'll give you like a brief rundown of it. The majority opinion um, was kind of born out of like a whole different attempts at classifying the angels properly um, but the one that is probably the most famous and the most supported among theologians is one that's on in the early days popularized by a figure known as pseudo dionysius um, and was made even more popular in the middle ages by thomas aquinas as usual so this idea of the classification of the angels is the the nine choir one that you've maybe heard of before. Aquinas splits the angels into these different categories um, based on their proximity to God, based on their power, based on how much they understand God, but also how close to material creation they are. Um, Aquinas's scheme does this thing where the higher choirs of angels, or the higher hierarchies, he calls them, are the ones that 
behold God in his simplicity, because the idea that God, like the divine essence is purely simple um, and completely unified is a big thing for Aquinas. So for him, the created world having like separation and diversity is less like God because it's complex, it's complicated. There's a lot of, there's a lot of division within the created world. So for Aquinas, the angels are sort of this bridge between God's like omnipotent simplicity and the material universe's finite diversity. So the different levels of angels are the ones that are either more beholding God's infinity versus sort of translating that into material reality. I'll give you the analogy of like light being scattered through a prism, how it's like the same beam of white light, but then the prism sort of refracts it into like this different visual spectrum, these different colors that technically are all part of the single divine light, but they've been sort of distributed, if you will. It's kind of that approach where the angels are sort of like this prism through which like the divinity and will of God gets sort of scattered into the diversity of material reality. So the higher, the first hierarchy, so there's nine choirs, but they're split into these three groups. The first hierarchy are the ones that have the closest view of God. They are the ones that behold God as fully as a finite being can behold and understand God. Um, and they're the ones who are in like a super duper version of the beatific vision. Um, the highest choir, according to Aquinas, are the seraphim. These are the six-winged ones that Isaiah sees surrounding the throne of God. These are the ones that spend their entire existence praising God. Holy, 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 you know, that kind of thing. Um, those are the seraphim. Seraphim most literally means the burning ones. Um, what's that a reference to? It's assumed, like, it's, you know, they're, they're, it might be the torches or maize, like, they're burning love for God and, and stuff, or the beatific version. Their beatific version is, you know, it's, it's energetic, it's, it's lively, you know, that kind of thing. Just beneath the seraphim are the cherubim, or what we typically call the cherubim. There is debate among scholars about how it should be pronounced, because the word it is sort of borrowed from is Assyrian and is pronounced with a hard C sound. So there's so there's a good argument to be made that it should be pronounced cherubim. Um, cherubim is plural, by the way. Cherub is singular. I will consider. Why, why did you get that from Assyrian? Um, weirdly, you remember when I mentioned that some of the imagery for angels is like a broader Near Eastern thing? The Assyrians were um, a neighboring country that conquered northern Israel uh, like a 200 or so years before the conquest of Jerusalem by the Babylonians. Um, and they have probably the closest imagery to the Jewish imagery for divine attendance. And so... I, have some, I already have some questions yeah. about Assyrians because of that. Yeah, so their word for their divine attendance is basically the same word that the Jews use for the divine attendance that they depict, which so happens to be cherubim. Cherubim is yet another yeah, basically. <laughs> yes. At any rate, so the cherubim, um, I think in the original Assyrian means something like the near ones or the ones that are close. So Aquinas kind of puts them as, you know, they're the ones that are very close to God, right? The cherubim are typically seen as being those four-faced, four-wings ones that Ezekiel sees in his vision, the ones with like the wheels within wheels full of eyes kind of thing. Those are typically considered to be the cherubim. Weirdly, the cherubim actually show up in a lot of Jewish art. Um, not much extant Jewish art, but throughout the Old Testament, there's a lot of references to artists working on the temple or on sacred things that include cherubs, 
but it seems like the author like expects us to know what those are. Presumably the original audience would have known what a carob was. We don't know, like we're not given an actual description. For instance, the Ark of the Covenant. It says in Exodus that they make the image of two cherubim that go kind of on the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. But it doesn't actually tell us what the cherubim look like. So we just kind of, in more recent art and in sort of reimaginings of the Ark of the Covenant, just do the thing. Because it does mention that they have faces. It does mention that they have wings. So the typical image of the Ark of the Covenant with, like, the two guys with wings kind of stretching their wings out and looking towards the, towards the actual sort of box portion of, of the Ark, that's about as close as we've got. There's also mentions that in the temple itself that Solomon builds, uh, there are or not necessarily the one that Solomon builds, but the way it's referred to in later scriptures after the temple's destruction refer to cherubs. For instance, Ezekiel has another vision where he sees this temple for God, and it's assumed that it's based on the temple in Jerusalem. And he says that it has cherubim kind of like engraved onto the, the corners of the walls, I think on the outside. And we do see this repeated imagery of like, they have wings and multiple faces and stuff like that. But in that case, it's only two faces. I don't know why. At any rate... And then there's also mentions that the embroidery of the veil within the temple that separates the Holy of Holies from the holy place, that is the, the chamber where the Ark of the Covenant is kept, the curtain that sort of separates that from the rest of the temple, supposedly has cherubim embroidered on that as well. We're not sure how many. We're not told what they look like. We just know that there are some cherubim on the veil of the temple. Okay, great. So that's... Oh, yeah. Oh, I bet. As babies? Fascinating. So, those are the... the Yeah. Maybe, yeah. Yeah, I suppose that makes sense. So, those are the... I, that'd be hilarious. That would be hilarious, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. be interesting. We'll see. So the seraphim and the cherubim are the ones that are like explicitly mentioned in scripture in ways that are really accessible. Um, some of the the next few choirs of angels hypothesized by Aquinas and Pseudo Dionysius are based on a line in the writings of St. Paul where he talks about how you know neither thrones nor dominions nor principalities nor powers can separate us from God, that kind of stuff. For some reason that nobody's ever told me, those are traditionally interpreted as being references to different types of angels. I, I really genuinely have no idea where that interpretation originally comes from, but it is almost unanimous among theologians that that line perhaps does represent, you know, like kings and, and nations and things like that. But the idea of thrones and principalities and powers is at least um, in one sense of scripture— a reference to angels. What's the context that he uses that? What's the full line he says? The full line is something along the lines of basically like, once you're a Christian, you're always a Christian. You know what I mean? Not to fret because nothing can separate us from the love of God. But, so that's an oppositional context that like, yeah, up against. Yeah, which is why there are some. Which is why there are some. Um, basically, basically, yeah. In fact, there's another line that I cannot remember off the top of my head. 
where um, another epistle says something similar, but it only mentions certain certain of those words. Like, it doesn't have the full list of thrones, principalities, dominions, powers. It only mentions a few of them. So there are some people that suggest that this might be indicative that, like, most of the demons come originally from these choirs or something like that. So the ones that are under the seraphim and the cherubim are the thrones. And then they're sort of the third of the highest hierarchy. And beneath that is the second hierarchy. They do have a pretty good knowledge of God, uh, a very good view of the divine simplicity, according to Aquinas. Um, yeah, but the divine will is beginning to be, as he calls it, kind of multiplied at this level. So these angels are not just like beholding God in his fullness. They're kind of starting to like, again, sort of refract out those sort of different beams of light from, from God, if you will, uh, according to our prism metaphor. So these are... The dominions, the virtues, and the powers. Again, following that line from St. Paul for a reason that I would love to be told, but I don't know off the top of my head. And then the third hierarchy, the sort of lowest hierarchy, or I guess you could say the closest hierarchy to us, are the ones that receive knowledge of the divine from the higher angels and then sort of continue to multiply that and they sort of apply the divine will to the material universe. Um, if there are angels that are really, truly directly responsible for natural phenomena and the laws of physics and things like that, it's probably these guys. So these are the these are the lowest hierarchy. They are the principalities, the archangels, and the angels at the lowest. So the archangels are called the archangels because most literally that means that they are like the arch, the arch messengers, if you will. Uh, traditionally, they're seen as the ones that are the messengers of God, but they bring like the most important messages, like Gabriel announcing the incarnation and, and so forth, right? Um, so it is the lowest choir, the ones that are just called the angels, that are typically assumed to be the guardian angels, because they're the ones that are sort of the closest to humanity and things like that. Um, it is almost as though, this is going to be a weird comparison, it's kind of like how we say like some adults are like good with kids. It might be that these angels are, they're good with humans. You know what I mean? Like these angels are just like, they they kind of get humans a little bit more. Um, and so they are the ones that are, in a certain sense, designed the best to work with us a little more closely, more directly. But again, none of this is technically official. Even though this classification of angels is like extremely popular among theologians there's no like hard doctrinal reason to say that you have to believe that angels w work like this or else you're a heretic like this is like just like a weird like little t tradition of the church but it in theory therefore could be wrong this hasn't been infallibly declared etc 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 um we've actually already talked about how many angels there are which is what i was going to talk about next but um I want to talk briefly about some one archangel in particular, and that's Michael, because his place in this hierarchy is really weird because there are kind of conflicting lines that suggest that he is either an archangel or a seraphim, and it is unclear which <laughs> because he has a title like Prince of Heaven and things like that or Prince of the Heavenly Hosts, which suggests like a pretty high up position. But there is a point, I believe, somewhere in the scriptures, I could not tell you where. Um, it might be in the book of Daniel or maybe in the book of Revelation somewhere, at any rate, 
where Michael is referred to as an archangel, which according to Aquinas' scheme is one of the lower choirs of angels. So this has led to a, a weird sort of like, I almost want to call it like a pious folk tale, um, or it's, it's more just a speculation. It's a theological speculation that Michael is originally created an archangel, but was later promoted to seraph, which in part perhaps due to his involvement in the battle between angels and demons and things like that, because he's the one who's talked about in Revelation as being the one who's like leading the armies of heaven against the armies of hell. So Michael's just really unclear, yeah. Yeah, uh, something like that, because... Satan being sort of like the the biggest and baddest of the demons, it would make sense that he would be among the higher angels, according to Aquinas' scheme. But again, that's speculation. <laughs> and again, not technically official teaching. Yeah, yeah. But that's, for me, one of the fun things about angels is just like the kind of like, we don't know, so we're kind of free to speculate about, about this or that. Yeah, well, like, I think they I think they probably like some of the the anonymity in part because especially because humanity has historically had a problem with worshiping beings that were heavenly but weren't God. It probably makes sense that like they would be okay kind of staying a little more unknown because otherwise it would be really tempting to want to like pursue the angels perhaps to the detriment of the true worship of of the lord of lords you know what i mean yeah and so sort of yeah and in fact that's why some there's like a really old polemic we're talking like old testament old polemic that some of the um divinities of neighboring countries pagan cults witches etc are commonly criticized as being demons trying to distract us from god basically or demons trying to impersonate divinities and things like that yeah or for instance in the book of exodus when um the magicians of the pharaoh are apparently also able to turn sticks into snakes um some according to this theory that's because they are worshiping existing beings that have power over creation but they're demons not gods (laughs) That yeah, kind of thing. I, I, every time, every year that I do Exodus 90, yeah. that's always the part where I'm like, ah, the magic duels, let's go uh-huh. on. And then, like, you see the pharaohs, um, you know, these pretty damn severe plagues going on. Like, yeah. the rivers to blood, whatever. Right, right, right. The pharaoh, like, looks over at his magicians, and they're like, nah, it's cool, we can do that too. Like, it's like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, pharaoh was not based because his his magicians could do as much and more and where they tap out is like fleas you know like, like frogs <laughs> yeah like, yeah frogs. yeah, yeah. like shit dude fleas <laughs> that's next level like we we can't do that. and i was always just like why like it seems like they can do locusts but yeah. not <laughs> like the plague of flies. yeah i don't know what to like, tell you on that one um like that's some high yeah. level magic right there there's at least one theory. I don't know if this is a common theory or if I was just overly influenced by the Prince of Egypt that they're they're just like tricksters and charlatans, you know, what I mean? like sort of like pulling off these elaborate sleights of hand and, and all that kind of stuff. Do, I guess. And I, fleas are harder. Well, because like it's not even just that like there's a bunch of fleas all of a sudden. It's that like Moses like throws stuff into the air and the stuff becomes flies. I like I I think that's the flies. Maybe that's the boils. 
No, is that the boils? Because the boils is the one where he they like burn something and he throws he like scatters the ash on the wind and like then the boils start happening. Anyways, anyways, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's funky stuff. But that is about um, all that I have scheduled to talk about. So I am happy at this time to open it up to discussion and questions, and we can speculate together about these. Um, very compelling but very mysterious beings that are apparently on our side the whole time, you know what I mean? And all that kind of stuff. I'm just trying to get my head around what a battle between just purely spiritual beings would yeah. entail, you know? Like how yeah. Would that it's. I it also might be, this is a weird way of putting it, it might be a proxy war, and we are the proxy. <laughs> It, it might be that, like, the main way that they wage spiritual warfare is through the salvation or damnation of humans. Mm. That makes sense. I feel that. So it, wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't something that, like, happened at the beginning well, and done with, but it's that, no, so here, so there, So here's the thing. There's a lot of theologians that would say that. Yeah. Because, like, for instance, there is one traditional reading of a part in, in Genesis where God is creating the world and where he says, like, God separates the light from the darkness. Um, some theologians have interpreted that line as at least in part referring to at the dawn of creation, if you will, the fall of the demons and the sort of conflict that ensued because of that. Because, I mean, like when we get to Adam and Eve, at least by the time that the fall happens, I mean, like apparently Satan is well established as a very clever being in opposition to God. You know what I mean? Yeah. I'm sure that they would have been like separated by that point, but the fact, but the like concept of like yeah. them battling it out or something like makes more sense to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And there's like, there's this amazing, amazing line that Jesus gives one time, where so Jesus sends out his twelve apostles, um, not after the resurrection. This is like during Jesus's ministry. He gathers them together and he says, "I'm sending you like sheep among wolves. Take nothing for your journey." no extra money, no extra shoes, whatever, right? Just go out to whatever towns and preach the kingdom and all that kind of stuff, right? Eventually they all come back. They, they sort of regather and they sort of debrief and they're all, they're super excited about like all the cool stuff that they did and all the miracles that they were able to perform and all of like the good stuff that has happened as they're preaching the word. And Jesus has this amazing line where he says, yes, I have seen Satan falling like lightning from heaven, which is just, which I think is super cool. Um, and so the defeat of Satan probably has, like, one purely spiritual component to it. But I think at least from that line, it seems like a lot of the – a lot of – like, one front of the war is, is us. You know what I mean? And it is the salvation of humans and, and things like that. But there are also lines in Revelation where John says that, you know, Michael and his angels – engage the demons in battle and they cast the the dragon and his angels into the lake of fire and all that kind of stuff again revelations of funky one just because like some people interpret it really literally but it does borrow some it borrows a lot of imagery from the ancient prophets which are like very figurative you know what i mean so like is the whole thing where michael and the other angels do battle against satan is that just a reference to like our salvation or damnation i don't know i'm sure there are theologians who could make a more educated guess but but yeah but yes spiritual warfare is it's real 
That's real. doesn't seem like it it's it seems like in the same way that we say that god individually creates the human soul it would seem that the same is true of angels yeah that at least like again technically there's no official teaching on this but that would make way more sense than angels reproducing Not explicitly. Yeah, so we mentioned previously that angels have presumably a different relationship with time than we do, um, but that does admit some kind of dynamism, some kind of experience of time and change and things like that. One of the common views is that, at least regarding salvation, an angel's salvation is resolved kind of all at once, whereas ours is played out over the course of our earthly existence. Angels not having an earthly existence it's commonly supposed that like their eternal choice in their heart of hearts about whether they choose God or choose against God is kind of made possibly in like the instant that they are created, which means that like, according to this theory, like Satan, practically speaking, has always been evil. He was not creative e evil, but like immediately upon his existence as yeah, as an angel is able to perceive all that an angel can perceive, know that all an angel can know, and just immediately decides, I'm about this, and and I would I would rather do my own thing. There's tradition that they like knew about the incarnation, they're like, no way am I going to serve as an angel for so many years. Yeah, there, there's like one, yeah. yeah. So if you perceived all, how in the world would you be like, so, nah, so, I'm not going to be on God's side. I, say I perceived about that. all, you know, like, well, he wouldn't have perceived all, but yes, it is wild. Yeah, go ahead, Amy. So in the problem of Cain, C.S. Lewis is talking about, like, um, you know, what is, like, temptation? Like, without Cain, is there still even the possibility to sin, right? If something isn't appealing, um, like, is there any possibility? And he posits, like, even just a world where there is individuality, where there is this sense of I am me, you are you, there is already the possibility of selfishness. That I could say, like, I put myself above you and right. So even in like an abstract space of just spirits and minds, you could say, like, I am first, yeah, you are not. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Or or just a, a, a disobedience or a love of self. Yeah. And even in an abstract space. And that, that sin is accessible. Um, even to a being without temptation, right? And, and we can see that unfallen man basically made almost the same sin, right? That said, like, my will, yeah. not yours, without any concupiscence at that time. Yeah. Like, the, like, super uber man with, like, could control his own hormones and, like, animals wouldn't even attack super him or whatever. Was like, <laughs> right. Yeah, whatever yeah, yeah. C.S. Lewis posits, like, super in tune with nature. Like, if modern man saw him, would worship him, all of this, like, still was, like, that sin was, like C.S. Lewis says, grave enough to yeah. warrant the consequent the fall, and yet accessible enough yeah. that it would actually be committed. You know. Okay, this is like a weird tangent from that. There is one one 
not really serious theory. It's more of a speculation, I guess you could say. There is one speculation that humans being at least partly spiritual would also unfallen have some degree of control over the created universe of the material universe um now most of the time this is limited to just like your own body like we mentioned um i think last week that like it's supposed that adam and eve like couldn't die or be hurt just because like nothing aside from their own soul could could damage them without their consent there is one speculation that it would go even further than that and that adam and eve actually do have like some kind of like preternatural authority over the material universe which suggests that like some of the things that the saints like the the really out there saints could do might be what all humans were supposed to be able to do but can't because of our fallen nature right. like now again that it yeah survive without food and all those yeah things like that now that's not like a super well supported speculation yeah. but it's out there it's I, been proposed it's been proposed yeah, yeah. Right. it's been it's been proposed What else do you got, Eamon? Okay, so a lot of the themes that we've discussed, in pre- especially in our discussion mm-hmm. about God's nature and his attributes, mm-hmm. we talk about how we have an instinct to want to throw things into these recognizable categories, and I, I see a lot of that with angels, specifically yeah. just, and I don't know how much is from Aquinas and how much is from like our interpretation of Aquinas' ideas. Right, right. For example, the fact that there are nine choirs, the fact that we think, oh, they must be ordered like a yeah. business hierarchy. And right, the top yeah. ones are have the most authority. So yeah, yeah, yeah. is the understanding that choir equals class, potency, merit, nature? Yeah. Are they different types of beings? Or is it just that it's like a job description? Or is it a like virtue that they like is it simply just proximity to God and responsibility that comes therewith? Or is it like that they've earned this place or that they're yeah. created as like, or do we have any indication? Yeah. I don't know that there's any, like, hard answers on that one. As to what Aquinas himself would say, I'm not entirely sure. But my understanding is that Aquinas's division is based on a sort of something that's, like, about their nature. That they are sort of, like, created in this sort of spectrum, if that makes sense, with the ones that are higher or the ones that have a more complete and more direct knowledge of God, whereas the lower angels are the ones that are have either a less complete or perhaps like a more um, scattered, a more diversified understanding of God. Because like when we think about God, we don't think about him in his divine simplicity. We think of him as like we, like, yeah, like for us, we have to make separate statements like God is infinite, God is all-knowing, God is omnipotent, all that kind of stuff, right? Whereas an angel would, in their minds, be able to comprehend all of those things kind of bundled together as a single thought, if that makes sense. Yeah. So the idea is that the seraphim would be able to do, like, the best version of that, whereas the lower angels would have something closer to our understanding of God, where it's a little more, I don't, I don't want to say scattered, but, like, diversified, so, I guess you could say. I guess we're holding in tension these ideas yeah. of angels as being made with certain nature, mm-hmm. that angels that are uh, less divine in their arrangement I guess that operate less yeah. like God and more like us are naturally ordered into the lower tiers and interface with humans more and mm-hmm. that could be intentional by design that yeah. they can actually relate to us or be comprehensible to us yeah. that we don't have just as much trouble relating to them as we do to God but yeah. then we see this movement potentially where you uh, with Michael, Michael being promoted yeah. that, that seems to say that like 
humans can have this trajectory or at least that there is a capacity that can be attained or not attained. Right. And angels as being avaternal, right, where there is at least this, mm-hmm. um, you know, their creation, their nature, and then their act therewith, right, like doing yeah, something yeah. with what they've been given. And we see them interacting with nature as well, their effects. If they created the universe, there was, at least from our perspective, a time when that action had not happened than what it has. Yeah. So from their perspective, could they move closer to God or, or anything along those lines? Yeah, like, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. They at least can. They at least can fall, like lightning. Apparently, yeah. well, it, the, I mean, yeah. move down relatively, maybe. That, like, More, morally speaking, you're not doing at any worse, rate, but yeah. Some other angel takes, I don't know. Anyway, so that's yeah. I I, I guess it's all fuzzy. yeah, and, then, and it's it's possible that like these choirs are not uniform within themselves. Like it's probably not the case that like every throne is like each other throne. Every cherubim is like every other cherubim. You know right. what I mean? Um, but I don't know if it's the same. I don't think it's in the same scheme that's it suggests that like each angel with its own species and they have these different choirs. I think those come from different, different theologians that, that kind of thing. Like different. Okay. Yeah. But so those are those they could be synthesized, I guess. Interesting to me. Like be. even just in the instance of angels having names, yeah. in what sense is name a human concept versus Yeah, I mean you mean like in terms of having a sound that's associated with them, that is Almost, yeah, almost certainly, just like an that. alias, so that we can right. think but about them in a certain way. If there's, but do if they have an I, from... a distinct identity? Yeah, it would seem that they do. Right. Yeah. So if we start from the raw concept that mm-hmm. there are angels rather than right. just like some amorphous, yeah, yeah, yeah. angelic substance, right? Yeah, or yeah, that yeah. like they are multiple in the sense that God is a trinity. They're just some other being that has multiple faces. Right. Like I, that, that seems to not be the Catholic perspective. Right. Then. How would any angel delineate itself from any other? Yeah. Well, to a human, right, they might appear embodied and they'll look different, I guess. Right. If Gabriel appeared to Mary again, I, I assume he wouldn't. He'd be po- so so polite as to at least have the same face. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Confused, but um, you know, or or any any saint or um that has had multiple visions, presumably of the, of the same being, but in the beatific vision or in the yeah. apprehension of angels you know, in heaven, if, like, presumably, like, there would be some sort of manifestation that you could at least tell them apart. I'm just wondering what that would be. Like, if it would be a sense yeah. of names or if it would be a sense of a sensation or that they would just have different voices and right, he yeah. knows them by their voice, all that stuff. All of the above. Anyway. Yeah, um, yeah. That, I mean, that one's completely free of speculation. Going up, yeah. um, a, lot of the, a lot of the, um, like, second-order, like, interfaces between the of the angels with humans Mm -hmm. and like how that kind of goes down i see reflected in both c.s lewis and tolkien's work with some some interesting effects yeah like the pantheon of the valar and the silmarillion how there's iluvatar and then he creates the angels Mm -hmm. he kind of like like lays out to them the song of creation and how things are going to go and that's the moment where the rebellion happens Mm -hmm. and then the iluvatar are actually seen or not the, the the valar right they some of them go to Middle Earth or like creation, and the ones that don't are almost seen as higher. Like the ones that stay with the yeah. are like those are like the the angels that just praise all day or whatever. And then, but the ones that go like are the ones that we attribute potency to because we're seeing their effects of the right. raising mountains and whatever. And they're seen as gods by the culture, so that seems to right. track a lot. Yeah, with some, and some of those cultures might not even be aware that there's another god beyond them. Anyway. Mm-hmm. So then paganism as demon worship, same idea. We talked about that. Yep. Our guardians angels recycled. We talked about that. Recycled. 
Um, are angels capable of virtues beyond obedience and piety? Because a lot of virtues sure. should be tied to human deficiencies, yeah. like patience and charity. Right. Like, well, charity what is sense could an not angel so much, but be patient. Yeah. Well, charity seems that you're like suffering some harm to yourself, or you're like when we talk about, when we talk about virtue, charity is like, like caritas. That's like love. Sure. Do you mean like, like generosity? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Generosity yeah, yeah. or sacrifice? Can an yeah. angel sacrifice? Love, like like in what sense? Angels. In what sense can an angel sacrifice that's yeah. not just obedience? Yeah. Like, yeah. Is there a sacrifice? They don't have material possessions, I right. assume. Like, yeah. we sacrifice as in, like, I'm experiencing hunger, I'm experiencing financial deficit for the sake of another, or I'm experiencing, mm -hmm. like, you know, putting my emotions in check, which are yeah. a very embodied thing. In what sense is it that an angel just, I'm not doing my will right now, which is just obedience? Yeah, I think I think there's obedience. I think there's probably a certain sense of humility that kind of goes along with that as well. Like, yeah. like, I, like we've mentioned, being as heavenly as they are being as powerful as they are and especially the fact that humans apparently want to worship them given the opportunity you know what i mean it would right. make sense that i think a deviant angel would take advantage of that whereas uh, whereas a holy angel still, it seems, it seems yeah like i mean so sin an angel can right is, I'm so God. technically you know, speaking like... most of the virtues that we talk about are just different facets of the same holy existence, sure. if that makes sense. But like, and with angels being, facets, like no, I know, I know. And I think part of that is due to the fact that we are, at least according to Aquinas and, and similar theologians, we are more complicated, which right. for Aquinas is not a compliment. Right. <laughs> to yeah. be a more complex being is to be less like God. So I, I wonder if Aquinas would say that, like an yeah, we would past. almost we would almost expect angelic virtues to be more streamlined, to be more sort of combined and, and things like that i would i would say that Reflective according to my experience yeah most of like the virtue of an angel is contained in their capacity to know and their capacity to love so the, to, to the capacity to which they are able to comprehend god and sort of by extension comprehend his will and creation and things like that and then their ability to will the good of the other as we usually yeah. talk about love as that kind of thing so i guess yeah. Even thinking of angels having virtues in the way that we understand it, it's almost a form of anthropomorphizing. It could so, be. Yeah. It could be. But, um, I mean, most virtues can be umbrellaed like under just love, you know? And like, if the angels don't mm -hmm. have opportunities right, to practice certain virtues, like if, you know, there isn't some like unjust situation that yeah. they have to fix and like be just towards another person, but other they're than not just, synonyms. Like, we're worshiping yeah. God, you know? Like, when you say umbrellaed, you mean categorically that like, there's a primordial sense that stems from that? Yeah. yeah, but it manifests, like, we would say, if I describe an action and I say, is mm -hmm. this an example of generosity or is this an example of yeah. piety? Like, yeah. you yeah. would I'm maybe be able to tell the difference, but I'm saying with an yeah. angel, like, could anyone even make that distinction? If this angel is yeah. acting thusly, or yeah. is it all just... What I'm just, I, yeah. I guess I'm kind of following, like, Michael's train of thought with, like, you know, just that simplicity where, like, right. you know... Yeah. I think, it, I think we're just, saying yeah, this. Yeah, 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 it is just oh, love, yeah. but, like, for us, like, that manifests in more ways just because... Yeah. Yeah, and the way right. that the way that the church talks about virtue um, is that virtue is not just the action of doing good; it's like the capacity to do good actions. If that makes sense, the technical catechism definition is that virtue is a firm disposition to do good easily, quickly, and joyfully. Right. So it's possible to say that even though like angels might not have the occasion to do generous things, they have the capacity to 
be generous given the opportunity. You know what I mean? Right. So it might be the case that, like, yeah, it would be proper to say that they're brave, not because, like, they have any reason to have danger, but that given if there were such a thing as danger to an angel, they would be able to be brave in the face of that. Yeah. And it might be the case that, like, again, us and our material existence and our salvation or damnation might be, like, the main place where a lot of angels actually do have the opportunity to be generous, to be merciful, to be patient, to be, you know, whatever it might be. Yeah. I really liked that point, too, because I feel like it just helped a few things, I don't know, click for me, even sure, though it yeah. was just kind of speculation, just that, like, you know, because evil happens in the world, like, largely because of a lot of the decisions that we make, but then there are other things that happen that, like, could be, you know, evil or just, like, right. not good, you know, like, natural disasters or, like, illness or, like, that yeah. type of thing to where we're, like, that's either, like, an action of God or just, like, a negligence of God, and it's, like, why is that thing happening, right. you know? Yeah, Whereas yeah, yeah. if it's, like, angels and demons and like interacting in the world and like making those kind of things happen and like that makes a lot more sense than mm -hmm. you know attributing just all of that directly to god you know what i'm saying i know so, what you're saying yeah. yeah yeah i feel like there's a little bit of consolation oh, yeah. in that almost you know so and it's weird because like <laughs> again there's like this criticism that's sometimes leveled against some of our ancestors about how like oh you know old-timey people were so quick to assign demonic influence to diseases or, or whatever yeah. right but it's like I don't know, with the nuanced, with like the nuanced understanding that the Catholic tradition, little t tradition has about this kind of thing, yeah. it doesn't come out of nowhere. Like I, I would not right. say that that's just simple superstition. I'm sure for a lot of We're Catholics historically, yeah, I'm, I'm sure a lot of Catholics were just plain superstitious. In fact, we know sure. from history that many of them were, yes. <laughs> especially <laughs> in certain eras, mm -hmm. but Weirdly, I think even some of our our best theologians might end up saying something similar, nuanced, but similar to the idea that like little Billy's sick because demons. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. But it doesn't mean that you need to like bring in an exorcist to like heal. Right. Yeah. But just that like that's kind of where that kind of stuff comes from. Yeah. Which is why again, like for some of Jesus's miracles, there might be a weird amount of overlap between what's an exorcism versus what's a curing. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um. Okay, so the next one was Guardian Angels of Nations, and you mm. did touch on, I was wondering if you were going to say that, and yeah. you did, because um, the idea, and I've heard someone say, like, oh, there's a Guardian Angel of America, you know, right. like, so, like Angel of, and it, yeah. se it almost seems that, why, why would that be the case? Because the nations are, like, a very contingent and dependent distinction yeah. based on these potentially arbitrary human concepts of right, delineation yeah. of borders and communities and yeah, things like that. authority, yep. which are inherently fungible and aren't persistent, oh, yeah. right? That, oh, yeah. Like, there are nations that, uh, you know, existed but don't anymore and yeah. that potentially will exist but do not now, or that exist but aren't recognized, like Hong Kong, mm -hmm. that some of the world thinks is a nation and right. you know, yeah, or, or yeah, doesn't, yeah. or Taiwan, it, like, its sovereignty is yeah. not recognized or... All these different things, or nations that were nascent, like was mm -hmm. there a guardian of angel of the U.S. during the Revolutionary War? Yeah, like, all yeah, of a sudden, yeah, yeah. It seems like why why is there apparently divine recognition of such things if an assignment is made? Yeah, so it could easily that could easily just straight up not be the case. Again, it's like all kind of speculation at this point. It, it could easily be the case that that there aren't actually like national angels, if you will. It might be the case that 
there are angels that are you know the stewards of certain communities and to the extent that you could say that everybody in america is a community of sorts maybe there's an angel assigned to that mm-hmm. um it and like it's just not as like hardly defined as maybe we like to think it is or um one thing that i wonder about is it might be kind of like the way that the church does things um because the church has dioceses right that are not arbitrary but they're also not like from the top down so the way that dioceses are divided up really genuinely is just like how many people happen to live in what place from the very earliest days of the church the diocese structure is based on the political like city infra like placement basically there are a lot of people in the city it's a diocese, you know what I mean? This is clearly sort of the cultural and economic hub of this little concern. region. Yeah, so it may be the case that how angels are assigned to communities, if they are at all, might be kind of like a weird sort of... An emergent quality. It might be, yeah, like a condescension, if you will. The assignments are based on the de facto state of humanity as opposed to like the dedicto either heavenly or human. Maybe if that were the case, that would make more sense for angels to be recycled because, like, as stuff kind of moves around <laughs> Perhaps, here, and, like, yeah. you might move them around. I don't know. Just well, with the mind knowledge of every state that will occur, it sure. can all be arranged ahead of time. But, yeah. um, like a shift, so to speak. Mexicans, like, I got this. All right. So <laughs> yeah, they clock in and clock in. out. Yeah. I'm going to skip over this one because I know it's going to be okay. a long I'm discussion. I'm but there's muffins on the counter if you guys want them. Okay. Yeah, I'll get them. I'll see you. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry to cut you off. <laughs> <laughs> Mary, you got anything? Any thoughts? Any questions? Okay, just taking it in. Oh yeah. Are you saying bye bye? You trying to go to bed? It is bedtime. It's past bedtime. Should we turn on the heat? I can take her unless you want to. She probably needs a diaper change too. Okay, I can do both. Okay. Yeah, PJ's. For those of you listening at a later date, if you have not figured it out already, we do have a toddler in the room. <laughs> and she's been here the whole time. Always has been. Always has been. Eventually, yeah. Okay. yeah thank you. Are you still recording? Yeah. Oh, bye, everybody. <laughs> um, the question that I was going to ask now was, mm-hmm. Angels apparently have presumably finite potency, right? That yeah. like, there are certain things that they are capable of and certain things that they are yes. not. We have to distinguish them from God in that way. Yeah. I'm potentially very amongst themselves in potency that an, a given angel may be capable of something that another angel is not, at least in the sense of knowledge, right? That they, they don't all know the exact same amount. Right. Right, right, yeah. So I think Aquinas would agree. Certain angels might be capable of creating the universe and others might not. And so then the question is, is there, um, there are limitations in the exercising of the potency that they may have bound by law or just by their will? So for us, it's bound by will. Like there are certain things that we yeah. should do, right. but we have the ability to not, right? Yeah. So we could disobey. Right. So angels apparently can disobey, right. or, or some did, but can a given angel, um, like in what sense are they fixed? Like, could an angel, yeah. like, is the only thing stopping an angel um, from doing something that it is not supposed to do God's will or their own, I guess? Um, for, I would guess a mix of both. Um, there's some language in the book of Revelation wherein St. John suggests that 
Satan is bound by God and Michael and the other angels. And then after what he calls like a thousand years or so is then released. And then Satan just wreaks havoc on the earth for a while before like the final triumph of heaven and all that kind of stuff. Um, to me, that makes it sound like, at least figuratively, that there's sort of this play both of like the angels' will themselves as well as what God's will is. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. That like there are certain situations where, for instance, like if an angel could disobey and could do so to like create earthly effect if they wanted to. You know what I mean? Um, and we see that apparently pretty pretty readily. I mean, it's in like some of the first parts of Genesis that the serpent is around doing things God doesn't want him to do, but allows him to do. Are you asking like, are angels just like constantly trying to exercise the full extent of their capabilities and the only thing holding them back is the, the will of God? Or something else? Um. I guess we would say that... Um, or have I misunderstood your question entirely? Like, what's the, the delineation between law and nature? Because for us, like, law is, like, completely separate from our nature. Like, there are certain things that sure. we are ordered to do, but then our, our, our free will is independent of the law. Like, the law yeah. does not control my free will. Right. My free will is completely dependent on the law. Like, mm -hmm. there's nothing that I'm, like, hard-coded that I will do irrespective of my choice, that we can give meaningful consent. And yeah. like, I'm just wondering if free will of angels is just totally different. That, like, they're they're more robotic in the sense that they, yeah. they do what they're designed to do. Right. You know what I'm saying? I, like, I think it's unclear, to be honest. I think it's unclear because I, I want to say that, obviously, the good angels are in in the saints in heaven the human saints in heaven experience this as well where their will is in such conformity with god's that like they would never want to do anything contrary to his will not because they are robots at that point but because they are like deliberately going along with the will of god yeah however uh in at least a good chunk of islam they actually do see angels as more robotic that I, I want to say that there are at least some Islamic theologians that say that angels actually have no free will and that they, they really genuinely do just like they are these sort of just spiritual powerhouses that just perfectly execute the will of God, which is sort of inherent in their nature and, and things like that. You know what I mean? So I, I guess to, to explain my question a little bit more, sure. I'm talking about like the nature of discretion. So for us, for example, mm -hmm. we talk about divine will but also just divine inspiration that the holy spirit might for example guide the hand of the gospel writers yeah. but did not dictate every gotcha. word they weren't just like going into a trance and writing exactly yeah. so the human voice can be there so if an angel has a command or mm -hmm. deliver this message or create this effect is it necessarily spelled out to the letter like are angels capable of making choices is what i'm saying like or, or there gotcha. was one choice that they made mm -hmm. and then their entire life now is just like they're just doing that which they are commanded it to the to the degree or is it like yeah. that angels could have discretion or a different style or like, yeah i don't like, i don't know that there's a clear answer see, like, for that, that one that yeah. Humans, that, yeah. Like, yeah a given human might express charity in their own way or right. in their own voice so like the that. same thing right it's like when we die, right? Mm -hmm. We have no yeah. And then, like, do we still, at that point, we are in a eternity, so we right. still have the choice to be like, I don't want to be here. 
again, I that's where I'm like, right. I think that to a certain degree, we would have like we would still have free will, but I don't think you would ever want to. It's just a different. Right. That's yeah. what I was like. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean, I don't know that you would ever want to. Like a terminal state of morality, I guess. Yeah. yeah. You you reach like a conclusion. I guess. Yeah. I, that that, that, that kind of like me. weird. Like, I'm, I'm less I'm less saying right. like, it could be reneged on salvation as I am saying like. Do they have once, freedom once of expression you reach, you within the divine commands? Per- perfection, like, does yeah. the individuality totally get filed away, right? Like, yeah, where I'm it's not like sure. Everyone just sure. looks like the same identical, pious soul at that point. You know what I'm saying? Which, yeah, I'm not if, sure. if you're doing the will of God, and the will of God has this consistency that his mm. will is not arbitrary, then it would seem that there is this I- similarity that would come about. Anyway, um, interesting. I, kind of, I don't know. I mean... I'm not I'm not an expert on this, but I'd like to yeah, say ahead. like the individuality would still be there because like that's the way that God created us, and that's not like a result of yeah. sin or anything. That's <clears throat> that's just right. How right. We're For made, humans, you know? right? But to a certain yeah, but to a certain, de- yeah. Yeah. To a certain degree, that right. is we're seen as like that this this total yeah. incompleteness because it can almost sure. be seen as an imperfection that some have access to that which others do not. And mm-hmm. C.S. Lewis talks mm-hmm. about that. It's almost mm-hmm. like how you know you could paint this beautiful painting. And that's very full, and everything is filled in with color and shading, and that could, I guess, be seen as the angelness analogy. And then you could have like a character study or just a sketch, or just like a brief sketch of like from a certain angle, or just to get yeah, the sense sure. of an yeah. experiment. Yeah. And that each human can almost be seen as that. That it's a very small, sure. simple, like cup designed to just catch a very certain shade of light. Yeah. Whereas like the more simple you get, you know, the more complete and robust, but you lose a tiny little bit of that nuance of like. There's almost a certain specific beauty in like getting very specific with things. I guess, like C.S. Lewis talks in *The Problem of Pain* about mm-hmm. that perhaps each individual human has the ability to see God in a certain facet or way, or understand a piece of God that only right. they will truly right. know. At least, respective to other humans, yeah. that like I come to my specific knowledge of God, that like my soul is designed to like be a certain shape that right. clicks onto yeah. a certain part yeah, of God that only I go there, you yeah. know? But I'm just wondering if, like, angels are similar or, like, they're just, like, another layer in and that distinction is kind of lost. But I maybe see it's it, a really yeah. weird thought. I could, yeah. I could see it both ways, I think. Because I think, on the one hand, according to the popular scheme, the higher angels probably would be less nuanced, if you will, just because, like, that, according to the popular classification, that's kind of their thing is if they behold God in more totality, in more simplicity, and they don't have the same sort of light scattering, again, kind of like the prism kind of thing. They're closer to the the sort of pure divine white light, if, if you will. But then again, with an infinite God, I mean, like, no single being could ever, like, contain an infinite God. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's possible that, like, even among... The highest of angels They're sharing could, that yeah, could could there still be like an presumably infinite number of them, and like, then like still not be able to contain God? I guess you know what I mean. There would be a piece of God yet unworshipped. Yeah, but right. but yeah, but it, it might be the case that like there are fewer of the higher angels and more of the lower angels. I mean, like for instance, when you take the the cherubim or the seraphim, for instance. I mean, we only see four of them in both Isaiah and Ezekiel and John's visions, you know what I mean? There's just the four around the throne. And then but John does mention that there are, you know, thousands upon thousands of other beings in heaven worshiping God. You know what I mean? So it's like eh, like, So um 
Oh, I just had a question that I lost. And, like, the archangels making these weird references to being part of a group of seven, you know what I mean? Seems like... I, like, I don't know where we put that piece of information, but it's a piece of information, you know what I mean? Oh, I remember what I was going to say. Yeah. The, there's a lot of questions that I have or general thoughts around, like, the nature of names. Like, because obviously God is referred to in all different ways. And right. names and references come up all over the Bible and have different significances. Like, mm-hmm. uh, even multiple names for the same being, like titles of Mary or titles of Jesus to sure. illustrate a certain effect. And I wonder if... And also, in the uh, interview with the exorcist from the Planet yeah. of the Aquinas show, he talks about how um, it's not just always a generic demon, that sometimes the demon actually will reveal their name. And some right. demons yeah. from the Old Testament, ha- uh, this exorcist said that he has encountered. So a demon that identified itself as Leviathan or as Moloch. Right. And then um, Matt Fred said, like, oh, have you ever encountered, like, Lucifer specifically, or is yeah. that a thing, or does he not do that type of right, work right, or whatever? Right. Yeah. And the exorcist said that there was a time where he was asking different names of uh, of a given demon that was manifesting and saying like, you know, you know, because th- the demon was not giving its name. He said, "Are you this? Are you that?" And yeah. then he said, "Are you Lucifer?" And the demon said something along the lines of like, you know. I was called that name once, but it does not apply to me anymore or yeah. something like that. And and they, they had a little like conversation about that the rejection of the name given yeah. by God is like this the fullness of apostasy. Oh yeah. That like that I reject all forms of you, including like the name that you gave me or whatever. Yeah, because the know, name because... Lucifer most literally just means light bearer and sure. is traditionally seen as like the angelic name for Satan. Right. And even among yeah. humans we see the like taking a new name for like a new circumstance yeah. Oh, yeah. like all this type of thing so i just wonder if if they're um if having a name or not having a name or having a different name like maybe the closest angels to god like almost they don't have names out of a form of humility or something or like they say like i am i don't know it was just yeah. off the head okay yeah. more interesting questions though so um is there an essential difference besides potency between angels and con and just concepts like numbers 